You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah 61. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. And the pages can be found on pages 620 uh, and 621. And um, this is the last week in this 61 series. And um, by any measurable stretch of the imagination, God has done more than we could ask or imagine um, my, my thoughts, even as as we worship this morning, is is thinking back to our leaders' retreat just a week ago, and all of the gospel dreams that are marinating in people's hearts. And so we are grateful um, that this is more than just um, just words that are on a page. This is the word of God that He speaks uh, into the hearts of His people, and He begins to transform them, form them. And as He transforms them, He begins to see transformation happen in the world. Well, as we jump into Isaiah 61 this morning, um, I just want to bring you into a story that Scott Sauls tells in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines. And he recounts uh, an interview of Mariah Carey when she was in her late 20s. She was at the time, she was one of the most celebrated artists in the world. She was third, only behind Elvis Presley and the Beatles, in terms of number one hits that had come out. And um, in a a moment of candor, um, the interviewer basically sat down with Mariah Carey and said, what is left for you to achieve? And he didn't anticipate her answer very quickly and very succinctly. She said, happiness. Happiness is what I have left to achieve. And like kind of took him off of script and he didn't really know how to have a comeback for that particular response. And so he said, how can you not be happy with all of your number one hits, with all of the people, all of the adoring fans, how can you not be happy? Because basically what he's saying, if, if you're not happy, who in the world can be happy? And this is what she said, and I think it's instructive for us. She said, I can have thousands upon thousands of fans and the voice of one or two critics undo me, Right? Have you ever had that experience? How many of you have ever had to sit down with a boss and have a, a performance review, right? I mean, there can be hundreds of words of encouragement, things that are going well, ways that you are performing well on the job. And then the boss brings one or two words of instruction, one or two ways that you could grow and what do you walk away with at the end of the day your mind is filled with the one or two things that you could grow in right no one likes criticism it reminds us that we are flawed and the fact is like we know deep down that we're all flawed but we just don't appreciate it when other people notice right we're all deeply flawed i I had an experience like this when i was in the Navy. And I remember sitting down with uh, a commanding officer and he was doing a performance review much like this. And this was, 
Um, this is after God had done some work in my life. I mean, my first half of my Navy career, I mean, I, I spent some time in the Navy jail. So I was not doing a good job even by their standards. But by the end of the career, like God had worked in my heart and I'd been born again. And I sat down and he said, I want you to know that you're the top sailor in this department and you're the number five in the whole division. And at that time, there were about 200 people. And what I took away from that particular interview with him out of being number five out of 200 other sailors was, who are the other four that are better than me, right? I mean, that's just how we are wired. And it seems a little OCD for us to, to kind of be obsessed with the idea of criticism, to be confronted with the idea that we're flawed. Like that, that, that's funny kind of when you're sitting down with a boss, but it's not so funny when that's the way that we view our relationship with God, right? I mean, if our bosses or our critics can point out one or two ways that we could grow, like God is perfect in wisdom and knowledge and holiness, how much more does he see of our flaws? And we tend to think that not only does he see us with our flaws, but that he relates to us on the basis of our flaws. So kind of the, the thought that as we look at Isaiah 61 this morning, I want you to take into the text this morning is, what if God wanted to sit down and have a performance review with you? What would you expect him to say? What would your heart feel in that moment? Well, thankfully, we don't have to wonder what he would say and what he thinks. We have it revealed for us in Isaiah 61. We're going to focus in on verses 10 and 11. And I just want to read the entire chapter because God has been so kind to us. I'm only going to ask you to stand for verses 10 and 11. But, but listen to God's word spoken over you. I mean, there's times where God speaks words to you and there's times that God speaks words over you. And when God speaks words over you, they're meant to transform your perspective of him. They're meant to transform your perspective of yourself and of the world. So hear this good news spoken over you. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. 
Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring that the Lord has blessed. Now, would you stand with me as we read the conclusion of Isaiah 61? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprout and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, right now we want so much to see your word formed in our hearts. Thank you for this stunning picture of Jesus. Thank you for his passion and his commitment to make this happen. Thank you for the weeks that we have been able to sit under your word and to hear your word spoken over us. And now we just ask for your help as we conclude this series, that you would cement it in our hearts, that you would allow the truth of these verses to transform us and to transform our mission to the world. To do that, we need you to send the spirit. Please help us. Please open our eyes to see Jesus. Please Clothe me in my weakness and allow me to experience your power through the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we all would feel some tangible sense of your love and your mercy and your forgiveness as we see you in Jesus name. Amen. So the the final Two verses, and I had to do some wrestling this week as I looked at the final two verses of Isaiah 61. Um, These are verses that Jesus is speaking to us, and they're words that are vital, that kind of hold the entire passage together. I mean, as I was wrestling through this, I mean, apart from these words being in this passage, Isaiah 61 falls apart. And even more importantly to all of us, if these verses aren't in the Bible, we all 
fall apart. These are verses that kind of get to the heart of what God sees when he looks at his transformation of his people and what God sees as he's looking at the transformation of the world. We get a little behind the scenes glimpse of God's heart. It's really important for us um, to connect with the passion that God has for his people and the passion that God himself has for his mission. It is going to be the fuel that continues to build this church. It's going to be the fuel that helps us go beyond these walls this morning to help us to reach the city. I mean, if there's anything in us that thinks that God is somehow reluctant to save us, If there's any part of us that thinks God is reluctant to love us or to pour out mercy on us, if we think that there's any reluctance in God, then it's going to cause fear to creep up in our hearts. It's going to cause doubt to well up in our hearts. It's going to cause disappointment to well up in our hearts as we try to relate to God and as we try to somehow discern what his heart is. The good news of Isaiah 61 is that God is more passionate about us and he's more passionate about this mission being accomplished than we are. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, this is Jesus speaking. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. So what is God's perspective of saving us? What is God's perspective of the mission? It says there is great rejoicing in his heart. And then there's that word exaltation. We don't use that word very often, but that word literally means elation that comes at the view of success. So it absolutely thrills the heart of God to save sinners. There is no better news for Fellowship Bible Church this morning than the fact that God is passionate about pouring out mercy upon sinners. That is the fuel of our personal transformation, and that is the fuel of the mission that God is eager and he delights to save. That means this morning for everyone in this room that Jesus loves to be the Savior. He loves to save people out of their brokenness. That means everything that we've talked about in Isaiah 61 where he heals the brokenhearted, where he comforts those who mourn. It means that it thrills his soul to pour out mercy upon people. And that is the good news that is proclaimed in Isaiah 61 verses 10 and 11. That means that he loves to be the Savior. And on the other side, that means he never tires of our neediness. He never tires of our need to be rescued. He never thinks about us and thinks, I wish these people would get their act together. He delights to pour out mercy. He delights to show us his mercy and his favor. I mean, no one is twisting Jesus's arm here. It's not as if like the Trinity drew straws and Jesus lost and he's the one that had to come to earth. No, it is the passion of his heart to save people. Now, you may think, well, that's awesome. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. Really appreciate it. Why is that important? 
Let's, let's talk about why that's important. Scotty Smith says this. We enjoy God to the degree we know his delight. So for us to be able to tap into his joy of knowing him, we must know that he delights in us. So when our hearts can say with confidence, I am my beloved's and his, his desire is for me, then we are free to love him with abandonment. And then we are free to love others as God himself loves us. He goes on to say, as image bearers of God, the deepest thirst and most acute hunger of our souls is to be delighted in by God. So you may not have arrived here this morning thinking that that is your greatest need to know that you are delighted in by God himself. But it is the reason that you were created. It's part of being made in his image. So as you arrived here this morning, your greatest need is not for financial security. Your greatest need is not for more rest or more time off. Your, your greatest need is not for the approval of some certain group of people. Your greatest need is to know that you are delighted in by God himself. We've all seen the devastating effects in a family if a child doesn't know the delight of his parents, right? I mean, a child that has been neglected, a child that has been isolated, a child that has been pushed off to the side. When that kind of isolation happens, I mean, the child is absolutely devastated. Yet that is the way that most of us relate to God most of the time, right? We think at best he is merely tolerating us. But the truth of Isaiah 61 is he greatly delights in us. Now, Martin Luther, the German monk who really was at the heart of the Reformation, I mean, there was a period of his life when he was a monk. I mean, he was absolutely tortured by his view of God. One time, uh, the, the one that was overseeing the monastery asked him if he loved God. He said, love God? No, I hate him, right? Because all he could think about God was all of the things that he demanded of him. And so he spent sleepless nights. He wouldn't eat for months at a time. And he was absolutely riddled with guilt. And he knew that there was no hope in and of himself to relate to God. And this is what he said. He said, if I could believe that God were not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy, right? I mean, that is the effect of the gospel. So the announcement of Isaiah 61, 10 and 11 is that God is not angry with us, yet he absolutely delights in us. He delights to save us. And that is the fuel that will carry you from the starting line of your Christian life all the way to the end. That is the fuel that will help us as we seek to take the gospel to Jonesboro. Not our delight in God, but God's delight in us. And so he gives us a powerful image to kind of bring that home. Look at verse 10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul 
shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So he gives us this vision of a bride and a groom on their wedding day. Jesus is saying, all of the beauty, all of the passion, all of the commitment, all of the anticipation that a bride and a bridegroom share on their wedding day, the way that they set aside time to intentionally take care of their appearance on that day, that kind of love, that kind of passion, that kind of anticipation is the way that I feel about my people. I don't remember a lot about uh, the, the prep work that went into my own wedding celebration. And my wife on the front row, um, she took care of most of the details. Um, but during that period of engagement, I remember she would write every day on my car. She would come by and she'd leave a little note before I left for work. I usually left like around 6.15 in the morning. And she would say, 153 days until we get married. And the first time I got one of those, I said, this is going to be a long 153 days. But she kept doing that. So I remember the, the, the countdown kind of going. And I remember when it, hit, when it went below 90. And I remember just the anticipation that was in my heart. And now looking back, I'm sure this was insensitive at the time. But I mean, probably no less than a thousand times during that time as we're planning this wedding, I said, you know, honey, this is a lot of work. We could just elope. We could be done with all of this right now and we could be married, right? Because what was in my heart as a, as a prospective groom at that moment was I didn't care about the details. I just wanted to be married. I mean, there was just anticipation to be with my bride. And um, that's the kind of passion that Jesus is saying that I have for my people. That's exactly the way that I feel about you. So you have to remember, this is Isaiah 61. This is 700 years before Jesus took on flesh and came into the world where he was born in the city of David, where he became the savior. So as he's looking out over time and over history, he's saying, I can't wait for that day when every barrier will be eliminated. I can't wait to break into the world to pour out my love on my people. He has that that kind of anticipation for saving people. And if you take that a step further, he has that same kind of anticipation to reveal that salvation to you. So take just a moment. If you can remember, if you have the privilege of of being converted a little later in life, what was life like the day before you were converted? Do you remember that? For me, I woke up at three o'clock in the afternoon with a hangover. I remember feeling as low as I've ever felt in my life. And it was at that moment when I was feeling empty and I was feeling low that God was saying, I've been waiting all of time and all of eternity and I'm going to send someone. He's going to bring good news to you. And so you know, inadvertently, I make myself my way to a mall and there's a young man who begins to share the gospel with me. And that moment changed my life forever. 
God had waited all of time and all of eternity to reveal himself to me. And every one of you have a story like that. God is eager to pour out mercy. Not only is he anticipating pouring out mercy at the moment of your conversion, but whatever you're facing here this morning, right? I mean, salvation is not just this final end goal, right? I mean, he saves us thousands of times each and every day. So he's eager this morning to pour out mercy precisely at your point of need. If it's in your marriage, he is eager to pour out mercy on your marriage. If it's your parenting, he is eager to pour out mercy upon you. If you are battling habitual sin over and over and you can't find any escape, he is anticipating pouring out love and mercy on you this morning. He's not hiding. He's not reluctant. He's eager to pour out salvation upon you. And we need to hear this as as a church. I mean, he's eager to pour out mercy on us as a church as we begin to dream and we begin to think about all the things that God has called us to do. God's like, I'm right there with you. I'm anticipating pouring out blessing on you and through you to the city. So those of you that are here this morning from campus outreach to reach the campus, he's eager to pour out his love and his mercy on you to reach the campus. He is eager to meet us. And then he, he's even more explicit. I want, I want you to hear this. Look at verses 3 through 5 of chapter 62. The wedding imagery continues. It says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you. And so your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman. So shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So that is the posture of God towards fellowship Bible church. That is the posture towards all of those that have fled to him for mercy. He says, my delight is in you. Now, if you're very familiar with your own heart and your own life, there should be something in you that's kind of an alarm bell going off saying, how can this be? How can God delight in a people? Because most of the time, like I look inside of myself and I know that I'm a wreck. Like I know that I'm a mess. And it's because of what we talked about in verse 10. It says that he has the garments of salvation. He has the robe of righteousness. And he gives it to his bride as a gift on the wedding day. And that represents the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So no longer do we relate to God on the basis of the things that we have done or the things that we have failed to do. We relate to him on the basis of of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That means his love for us, 
(laughs) is not dependent on us. And there's no better news than that in the universe, right? I mean, you have to think about this logically for a moment. If his love originated because of something in us, we have every reason to be uncertain. We have every reason to fear. But if his love is completely outside of us, and if it is not dependent on us, we stand here this morning as the people of God, rock solid and secure in his love. And we can say with confidence, God's delight is in us because of the work of Jesus. That's the glue that holds this entire passage together this morning. And it gives us assurance, right? There's so many of us in this room that struggle with genuine assurance, right? When things aren't going well, whatever our definition of well is, God chose us to have a relationship with us. His love quiets our anxious hearts. Zephaniah 3, it says he quiets us with his love. So I don't know what you're facing here this morning. I don't know what you're anxious about. I do know that he wants to meet you in that with his love. It gives us assurance. And then this is where I just want to close with this because... As we begin to see and experience the beauty of Jesus personally and corporately, what is the effect? Look at verse 11. It says, For as the earth brings forth its sprout, and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Right? So... This is, this is our evangelism strategy at Fellowship Bible Church. The more that we see that his delight is in us, the more that we experience that, we begin to delight in him. And the fuel for our mission to see the city of Jonesboro reached is that God has a passion for people, right? And his passion for people isn't dependent on us, but he's grateful to be able to use us. And so the more and more that we hold him up as beautiful, the more and more that we hold him up as the hero. It says it is an inevitable growth. Just as grass comes up out of the ground, that the praise and the righteousness of the Lord is going to spring up beyond all the nations. And so as we begin to gather in a new season in gospel communities and we begin a new season on the campus, what we have is this confidence everywhere that Jesus is proclaimed, righteousness and praise spring up. And so... (laughs) He is our confidence. He is the reason that we gather. And this is, and I'm going to close with this illustration. For us to be able to delight in the Lord is a gift. Um, And this is the hardest thing, I think, in, in Southern culture to get, right? I mean, you can know true things about God. You can memorize scripture, right? I mean, you can be in Bible studies, you can be in community, but not ever experience his delight. I kind of um, liken it to the fact that I like the Food Network a lot, right? And so I love to sit down and I love to watch chefs prepare things. I mean, you can think about chocolate cake. I mean, I can know that there are hundreds of variations of chocolate 
that go into making a ganache and, and seeing all those things come together. But if I never taste the cake, right, what do I know about food, right? I mean, so that's kind of the invitation as we're going to close this morning is that, that for righteousness and praise to spring up among the people, for the people of God to really be able to experience his mercy and his nearness and his grace, like we have to be able not merely to sing truths about God, but allow those truths to reveal God to us so that we respond with praise and adoration. And that's what we're going to do this morning as I invite Aaron and the band to come up and we pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. I pray that as we sing, that righteousness and praise will spring up from this place that won't be contained here, that it will go out into the world. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Um, I pray that as we continue to worship you, that we would be met precisely at our point of need. Spirit, I pray that you would be active among us, healing us and changing us. I pray that we would know your love more intimately and personally as a result of this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.